1: Hello, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. Today, we're speaking to Philip Rosenbaum about his new edited book, Making Our Ideas Clear, Pragmatism in Psychoanalysis, published by Information Age Publishing in 2015. Philip Rosenbaum is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst trained at the William Allenson White Institute of Psychiatry, Psychoanalysis, and Psychology, He serves as Director of Counseling and Psychological Services at Haverford College. He's co-editor of the Journal of College Student Psychotherapy and Associate Editor for the journal Contemporary Psychoanalysis. He's also my classmate from Psychoanalytic Training and now a good friend. I'm very glad to have him on the show. Welcome, Philip. Hi. Good to be here. So I want to start at the beginning. How did this book come about? How did you decide to publish a book about Of all things, pragmatism and psychoanalysis.
0: Of all things. Um, The book came about... um, When I was a graduate student and I was still trying to figure out what in clinical psychology I found interesting, um, I I fortuitously stumbled um, across a class taught by Marty Rock um, in... uh, on interpersonal psychoanalysis. And we read a little bit of Sullivan. And Sullivan um, reminded me a bit of George Herbert Mead, who's a pragmatist and who I had studied a little bit in college. And then when I was getting my master's, and it was important because it provided me with some sense of an anchor in clinical psychology um, that felt relatable, um, that honored um, my background as a more of a cultural psychologist, unless um, somebody who is necessarily a clinical psychologist. And when I was a postdoctoral fellow at, at the White Institute, um, I was talking with my college mentor, Jan Valsner, um, who edits the series, um, the Information uh, Age series in which the book is published, about possibly writing an article that compared. Um, the work of Harry Stack Sullivan and to the uh, pragmatist um, Charles Sanders, Charles Sanders purse, um, because it felt like to me there was a lot of overlap that hadn't really been explicated. Um, and uh, and Jan has a particular way of being. And in that way, he said, well, don't write an article, edit a book on the topic. Um, and so. I somewhat naively said yes to that idea, not realizing that it was going to take about four or five years um, to go from beginning the process of editing the book to then compiling the chapters and pulling it all together and getting it published. Um, it was it was quite a journey, um, and um, in doing that, I got to a lot of it coincided with my um, training at the White Institute, and so I got to read more about psychoanalysis and then to think about how it related to pragmatism. Um and um that made it interesting because um uh the interpersonal school which Sullivan along with Fromm and Frieda from Reichmann um and Clara Thompson um, are credited as having started draws pretty extensively from Sullivan's familiarity with um early pragmatism Um, and Sullivan directly quotes George Herbert Mead and also makes reference to William James, um, two important figures in in sort of pragmatic philosophy. Um, And so it was nice to be able to be reading interpersonal psychoanalysis, but also keeping in mind some of its roots um, as a pragmatic discipline.
1: So would it be more accurate to say not that you, uh, in, your, in your training in psychoanalysis, found your way to philosophy and pragmatism, but rather that you were first interested in philosophy and pragmatism and then found your way into psychoanalysis?
0: Yeah, that's probably a bit more accurate. Um, I wasn't so much interested in pragmatism per se as much as some of the ideas of the pragmatists, um, like this idea of semiotic mediation, semiotic basically just means signs, um, and refers to the way that people actively, um, construct, represent their experience, um, through different sign structures and the way that these structures are, are, uh, at play in say linguistic discourse or observation or, or lots of ways of being in the world. Um, so I, I, I think in some ways I was first very much interested in, in, um, Psychology, but a, a cultural psychology that interest, looked at meaning making, and then found my way in as a as a psychoanalyst. When I was uh, in college, I had no thought that I'd be a psychoanalyst. It made no sense to me what it was and why people did it. Um, and then gradually, it began to make a lot more sense to me.
1: So, so then, you are now a psychologist and a psychoanalyst. So. For those of us who are not that familiar, what is pragmatism? And also, what does it have to do with psychoanalytic psychotherapy?
0: So pragmatism um, is a philosophical doctrine, a set of ideas that developed um, first with Charles Saunders Peirce in the late 19th century, and then more publicly and extensively with William James, and then uh, George Herbert Mead, and then John Dewey. into the early part of the 20th century. Um, And a lot like relational psychoanalysis, it's sort of hard to pin down what pragmatism is. Each of the writers, um, James, Peirce, Mead, Dewey, sort of have a different understanding of it. Um, But there are a couple of things I think that are important. Um, The first thing is, um, I want to say what it's not. (laughs) Um, and, And what pragmatism is not is um, a way of being practically useful in the world. Um, so when someone says that they're they a pragmatist, they're practical, um, th- this is kind of true and kind of not true. It comes from this idea of uh, the pragmatic maxim, uh, which was an idea developed by Peirce um, in terms of thinking about ways of making our ideas clear. And, and the pragmatic maxim is um, sort of a way of cutting through the mud of thinking. And it's particularly applied towards, um, problems of meta psychology or sort of big ideas. Um, and for Peirce, the pragmatic maxim, um, is a way of trying to be as clear as possible, um, about what we're, um, perceiving or in his words, apprehending and how that's going to affect what we're seeing. So the maxim is, um, basically a way of saying um what would it mean what would the effects be if we were to consider this idea as true or um or if we weren't to consider this idea as true what would we gain what would we lose um how would it impact us um and so um To the extent that we ask ourselves that question, it has some practical value, right? So it could be a way of being practically useful, but not necessarily. Um, In in some ways, it's about a way of thinking about things and a way about trying to expand our thought. What would would be the practical effect if we were to hold this idea of true? Or if we were to think about something in this particular way, how might it be different than if we were to think about something in a different way? Um, And so how it applies um, to psychotherapy, um, I I think it applies pretty nicely um, because in in psychotherapy, one of the things that we're trying to do is um, to help people think about their lives, help people think about their experience, help people feel their feelings more help people get um, in in some ways more in touch with experiences that they might not necessarily be in touch with or to notice patterns that they haven't been able to notice or to think about their relationships in a different way. Um, And so we want them to sort of expand. Um, And so the pragmatic maxim is, is a way of posing questions to patients that, Um, moves us outside of necessarily having to think about things dichotomously as true or false, um, but creates a potential space where we can think, well, what would it mean if? What would it be like if? Um, So um, in in that regards, um, um, it has that type of of effect. Um, And I think a, um, a second reason the maxim is important is that um, when thinking about ideas, um, the pragmatists are, are looking for sort of the sense of like a like a truth value, not how directly does something correspond to reality, but how does it affect us in our daily lives? How does it impact our living? Um, does it make us feel more agentic, more purposeful, more striving? Um, does it expand what we can do? Does it feel true to other parts of ourselves? Does it does it hang together well? Um, and so, I, I think in this regard, um, the, the pragmatic maxim does have some sense of like, well, how is the person actually living their life? Um, are, are they being active? Are, are they out in the world being? Um, and so, I, I think it can also resolve um, some of the, the thornier aspects of, of obsessiveness and worry that get, we get caught into. The maxim is a way of trying to push through that and to get people to be in the world.
1: I I could see how that would be useful in psychotherapy to the extent that it, pragmatism serves as a way of holding, holding our thoughts accountable. I don't know if that sounds right, but really contemplating what is the effect on my life to see things in this way or to behave in this way or to have this kind of pattern in my life. Um, is, is, is that sort of in the spirit of what you're describing? Yeah, well,
0: it, it also encourages us to think about um, our thoughts and our um, ideas about life as as theories, as tools that we can use. Um, and um, so the arithmetic system is trying to – allows for experimentation um, and allows for people to think um, – about themselves in a way that is, okay, so, so what would happen if I did this or if I thought this? Um, that the maximum is encouraging a type of uh, a hypothetical almost thinking. Um, and that um, we can test these things. We can say, okay, so, so what would happen if I tried to live like this? Or what would happen if I tried to live more like this? Um, and I think one of the things that we try to encourage in, in therapy are, are for people to try on different things. Um, we we want to know, why does it have to be this way? Why can't it be another way? Um, and the, pragmatic, the maxim in pragmatism sort of allows us this room that, that we can think about it not as um, it has to be this way, but that it, it, it could be a hypothesis. We could test it. We could see how it goes. Um, and I think that can be freeing.
1: So I want to mention about the book that one of one of the great things about it is that e- even though you make the case r- rather easily that interpersonal psychoanalysis has a lot of compatibility with pragmatism, the first chapter of the book, which is written by Tanks Zitun, I hope I said that okay. right. Tanya Zitun. T- Tanya. Tanya, thank you. May, she makes the case that the influence of pragmatism can be traced back all the way to Freud. Um, can, she seems to suggest that Freud's theory contains pragmatic influences, even, even though Freud never acknowledged it. Can you, mm-hmm. s- can you say something though, in your view about what, where do we see the influence of pragmatism in Freud?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, um, she sort of makes a, a, an interesting, uh, and compelling argument. She, she talks about Freud, and his relationship with William James. Um, and the, the two of them have a, a much speculated relationship that um, it seems that James on the one hand respects Freud and his writing. And on the other hand is at times critical of Freud and his writing. Um, but we know that, that they met when uh, Freud came to Clark, I think in 1908 or 1909 uh, and gave his lectures there. Um, and, as a proud alum of Clark, I, of course, cannot remember um, when the exact visit is. Um, and so um, Tanya begins to wonder, um, And then, well, was there something about that particular time in the zeitgeist that might have been at play for both James and Freud um, that would have led James to articulate some definition of pragmatism um, and Freud to begin to articulate psychoanalysis? And so she suggests that there's a few things that we can look at. Um, the, the first is that um, what both James and Freud are doing um, is thinking about psychology as a type of phenomenology, thinking about that we're really trying to pay attention to our experience. Um, you know, for James, he has this idea of radical empiricism that we what matters is all of our experiences, the immediacy of them. Um, and, and Freud's very interested in, in unconsciousness and, of course, then the dynamic unconscious as a flow of experience. Um, and, and so the way that we come to know our experience and what we can't know. Um, and so they're both rejecting a sort of reductionist atomistic um, thinking that is trying to narrow experience down to particular variables or to uh, particular um, data that can be objectively known and measured. They're, they're thinking about experience differently. Um, and Freud sort of applies pragmatism in a few ways. Um, so the first is that um, one of the really cool things about Freud is he's constantly revising and reinterpreting his Theory And is paid in his, his own positions. Um, so you can actually almost think about Freud applying the pragmatic maxim, um, to his study of neuroses and to his study of the unconscious. Um, and this sort of speaks to the development of his different, his different theories, his different models of the mind that one set of theories, right? Repression works in a particular way, um, until it stops working in that way. Um, so his theory of repression allows him to see certain data. So he can begin to understand um, some neurotic conversion symptoms through repression. Um, but this takes him like one step along the way. And then, however, he runs into other problems. And so he has to abandon some of this theory of repression and, and takes on more of a seduction hypothesis, which he then abandons again. And then moves into more familiar territory of sort of an ego and it and a superego. So, in, in this regard, um, Freud is like really thinking with the data. Um, and the way he's thinking about it is he's utilizing this pragmatic process that um, Charles Peirce talks about called abduction, um, which is that um, he's generalizing theory from knowledge and from his experience. And he's doing this because he's trying to solve a problem. Um, and one of the cornerstones of pragmatism is that um, is that mind is is sort of active. Um, and when mind really, our minds are they're, they're they're active. They're constructing experience. They're out in the world. And when it really becomes active is when we have a moment of. Uh, Pers talks about doubt and error, um, uh, and and it's when we run into a problem, <laughs> when our our theory no longer works. It can't. Um, it can 't deal with what we 're seeing um, and in some ways that's an interesting moment because we have to figure out do we have to abandon the whole theory or can we add on to the theory? can we bring in other truths can we bring in more data more ideas that would allow to account allow us to account for things and we can see that development pretty clearly in Freud 's thinking so, um,
1: so are you saying that what makes Freud a pragmatist or or what he does that that is in line with pragmatism is not found in necessarily the content of his theory, but in but more generally in the way that he developed it in the way that he put it to the test of I guess through his clinical work and and kept the parts mm-hmm. that had certain effects desirable effects and and maybe reworked or discarded those that no longer had the desired effects
0: yeah, yeah, he, he applies almost like a pragmatic methodology. Um, to developing his theory. Um, and um, he has such keen powers of, of observation um, that he's also in some ways, right, how he's thinking about it is um, also very pragmatic. He's, he's abducting, um, which is this term that Peirce has. Um, so he's, he's sort of coming up with new links to make sense of what's in front of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... He's not so much necessarily a pragmatist in what he actually as you say the content or, or what he actually comes up with. Um but he's very much a pragmatist in how his um thought processes and his interest in psychological process, um, as opposed to necessarily outcome. The pragmatists um uh were very, very interested in understanding ongoing psychological processes, um, as is Freud. Um and so I think that's one of the uh one of the things that keeps his writing so lively is you can see that he's really grappling with, with process and what's transpiring and what he's seeing in the, in the consulting room. Um,
1: so you not only put together this book as, as editor, but you, you made several contributions to it as author, and you have a chapter of your own in which you introduce the ideas of semiotics and uh, purse. And compare them to Sullivan's ideas. Harry Stack Sullivan, the father of interpersonal psychoanalysis, for starters. I believe semiotics is a word that might intimidate people who are not familiar with it. So can you tell us what is semiotics?
0: Yeah, so semiotic is just – it means sign. Um, And um, when we talk about semiotic mediation or sign mediation, we're talking about it – a system of representation um so the pragmatists um meaning and mind um they're not blank slates waiting for the world's impressions to so then dutifully recorded by mind um and somehow understood um by pre-existing structures but um that that mind that the stuff of mind is active um in other words um that um we're constructing reality. Um, so, like, one of the really cool things I think about pragmatism is that um, we're, we're talking about a, a constructivism in uh, psychology, in meaning making, and we're talking about it pretty early in the 20th century, um, even almost in the 19th century, um, well before the postmodern turn. Um, and I think that's one of the really um, powerful things about. Interpersonal psychoanalysis um, is that it's uh, its roots. Like one of the knocks about interpersonal psychoanalysis is that Sullivan was very much a practical person. He was very much into um, working with patients, and so like one of the knocks sometimes is is that there's not a lot of a philosophical background or philosophical underpinning to it. But the pragmatists and his connection and awareness of them by the root wealthy, uh, very detailed, very rich philosophical background. Um, and so uh, one of the ideas that I think is implicit in Saldivit is this idea of semiotic mediation. Um, and that uh, um, in, in semiotic mediation, we construct reality through the ways um, we interpret objects, through the ways we use language, through the ways that signs, that all forms of, um, uh, both verbal, but also material signs are, are understood. Um, and, uh, and for Peirce, right, what's really cool is that, um, uh, for, um, his idea of semiotic mediation is for individuals, for people, he actually thinks that it applies to all organisms. But at the level of humans, it's a distinctly interpersonal process. Um, uh, He says um, that a sign is something A, which brings something B, its interpretant sign, determined or created by it, into the same sort of correspondence with something C, its object, as that in which itself stands to C. Um, so what's cool about this is that, that semiotic mediation involves three parts. Um, it involves uh, a sign, a um which stands um, to somebody. Um, it involves the interpretant, um, the sense that, that somebody makes of that first sign, of the um, and, and um, the object, the thing about what we're referring to. Um, so it's this really neat three-part system. Um, and for Peirce that means that we come to understand ourselves and our own sign systems our own way of being through relating to other people Um, which is very very similar to how Sullivan I think thinks about things
1: so Um, so self understanding is contextual
0: it's contextual and it's um, interpersonal It, it, it involves it requires another person
1: You have a great line in your chapter that I want to quote. You say that psychotherapy, quote, provides an opportunity to restart or realign the semiotic process, end quote. What does this mean?
0: So what I think this means is that um, uh, people get stuck in patterns and get stuck in um, sort of known ways of being. And, and so they're not necessarily being active and actively making meaning. Um, and, and so the semiotic process, the prospect of representing their experience, of understanding their experience, it, it somehow gets, like, hijacked and stopped. Um, uh, you, you see this, like, with uh, depressed patients a lot, um, where th- their energy is so low and they're in such a rut that um, – they're not able to make new meanings of their experience. They can't look at things from different perspectives. Um, they might not necessarily even have thought about their experience in a way to articulate what it's about. Very much like Don uh, Stern talks about a formulated experience. Um, and I think that when the type of, when someone is depressed or when someone starts a psychotherapy, in talking with somebody else, just a, a different person who has a different understanding of the world, we can see things differently. Part of what that provides an opportunity for is to re-engage meaning-making processes. Um, and it might involve looking at things that the, the patient hasn't considered worth looking at. Um, and, and I think that's because when you talk to somebody else, um, they come from a whole different place, and so they're interested in things about your story and your experience that you yourself might not necessarily be interested in. Um, and uh, I think that that can allow for people's curiosity, people's um, desire to construct experience, to make meaning.
1: Started. It, it's, it sounds like one of the implications then would be, one of the clinical implications would be that meaning making at its best is an active process, it, it, that it, it's intentional. And when we're not intentional about the way we're interpreting the world is when we are prone to falling into ruts is when we're prone to um, to enduring some kind of suffering. And that the way out of that is to take more ownership and try to maybe incorporate some flexibility into the way that we're making sense of things. Uh
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, um, uh, absolutely. Um, That meaning making is directed towards things that that thought is directed towards um, towards either resolving problems or to understanding something, um, and, and that our, um, we, we can sort of see ourselves in our behaviors and in our actions, especially when they're reflected back to us through somebody else. Um, and, and so um, meaning-making is intentional and relational. It's directed towards... Either ourselves in the past, um, and so the relationship is with the past self, or to somebody else in the room, or, or maybe towards a, a future self. Um, and so um, it absolutely isn't in, intentional. And I think that, and I think we can get obsessive about things and so worried that we can't make meaning as well. So meaning making can break down from depression, but it can also get hijacked by obsessive worry, obsessive concern, uh, where we make too many meanings. (laughs) We can't just settle on one. Um, And there I think that um, one of the roles of the therapist is to help contain that process um, so we can settle on a meaning and live with that for a bit and see what happens.
1: I I want to also move on to the idea of the self, as it's covered in your book. There's a chapter devoted to the self, and it compares the ideas of Harry Stack Sullivan with those of William James concerning the self. And it seems like they disagreed about whether the self has consciousness, whether it has volition. Can you tell us a little bit about their disagreements and what kind of implications those different ideas have?
0: I think you're talking about the chapter by John Wiedenbach. That's correct. Um, right. So, 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 um, so John um, uh, is talking about the way that um, um, Sullivan um, is seen as rejecting this idea of the self, um, and I, I think that that Sullivan. Um, He he describes it in his 1950 paper, right, The Illusion of the Self, um, that he's trying to uh, reject the idea of an unchanging I, an inner self, uh, Winnicott would call it a true self, um, that is in some ways immutable, like non-changeable, or really, really hard to change, um, and... um, and so John wonders, well, what does that mean then for free will? Um, you know, as Sullivan in some ways, if there's no self, if there's no like deep self or like there's no there in the self, then, then how does one be in the world? Um, and how does one act as an agent? Um, and John thinks that, that one of the pragmatists we ought to look for here to help ourselves out is, um, is William James. Um, Uh, and, and James um, also in some ways uh, rejects this idea of an essential self, of, of the uh, unchanging I. But he's able to do this by um, at the same time holding on to these important ideas of, of, of volition and human agency. Um, and he does this um, through thinking about uh, radical empiricism. Um, by which we think about all of the experiences that we can observe um, as belonging to us. Um, And what this does is, it doesn't say that there has to be a singular self, but rather we note the experiences that are ours because they're familiar to us. Something about the texture of them and the nature of them feels like they're ours. Um, And... um, in doing so, um, in, in how we feel and, and what we can uh, pay attention to, we're able to, to escape this question of an, of an essential, unchanging self and more move into an experiential self, what it is we experience, what it is we note. Um, and in doing that, we actually, I think, for, for John and, and for James, um, achieve a greater degree of freedom. Um, because we're able to observe more about ourselves and we're able to move into different parts of ourselves. Um, so, um, and then with that, um, if James is applying pragmatism, um, he's allowing us to say, and we can we can see how it works, how it feels, what type of life does it allow us to live. Um, so it doesn't have to be a thing. It can be many
1: things. Um, you know, this question of whether the self has volition and consciousness comes up a lot in my work. And I'm wondering if it comes up in, in your clinical work. I'm thinking of situations where people want to see themselves as going through life with good and bad things just happening to them rather than taking ownership for how their lives unfold, even for how their experience of themselves unfolds. Uh, How do you deal with this question in your own clinical work? And, and do these ideas from pragmatism help you sort any of this out?
0: (laughs) Sometimes they help me sort things out. Sometimes I think they confuse things some more. Um, but, um, I, I, I do think the idea of agency is really important. Um, And, um, especially moving from sort of a sense of things are, are happening to me to asking a question of what might I be doing or what might I not be doing that is in some ways playing a role in the things that are going on in my life. Um, and, um, I I think it's sort of about trying to find some sort of middle ground that acknowledges the context, acknowledges things about say our family life or where we grew up or where we were raised that, that impact us, right? That, that have a real profound effect on who we are. Um, While also um, being able to try to help people take responsibility for how they think about things and how they interpret their experience and, and what they might note about their experience. Um, and um, that you know, when people come to therapy, right, they don't usually come um, if they're not suffering. Um, I don't know about your patients, at least my patients come. <laughs> and, and something's going on in their life that they're not able to figure out. Um, that that they're not living the type of life they envision, that they're not satisfied. Um, that... Um, that they're not necessarily happy, and, and they're looking for um, they're, they're looking for an understanding and explanation for life to be different, to suffer less, to feel better. I and mean, then we might think about those experiences like Freud would think about them as symptoms, um, and would think about repression. But we might think about them um, as a, an experience of doubt or error or something coming up that can't get smoothed over by other parts of the self. And that it's a type of communication and it's a sign that's trying to draw attention to something. Um, and that um, one of the things I think that it's trying to draw attention to is that there are other ways that we can agentically be in the world that we might not necessarily be paying attention to or, or thinking about. Um, I, I think that's where having another person in the room who who does a lot of thinking and and talking about this is really helpful. Um, Not because we have answers, right? Even though that would be, that would be great if we did. Maybe it would be great. I don't know, Hmm. Um, but we can help figure out a process to talk about things.
1: You, You know, one of the things that I love about your book is that you have a chapter, you have a few chapters actually devoted to how these ideas can be applied clinically which is great for anyone who might be really interested in these ideas, but but not sure how they bear on the work that we do on a day to day level. And Georgia Lepper's chapter is a great example of this because she presents the case of someone she names Mrs. C, and shows us how pragmatism can help us understand the work, even at the level of the individual sessions. This is someone who tells about a tells us about a study in which she reviewed several sessions from a long-term treatment. She made a really interesting point about how sometimes the therapist's failure to take a turn, because she's really interested in turn-taking, in the conversation, meaning when the therapist sits silently and doesn't say anything in response to what the patient says, that that can actually create a rupture in the conversation and affect the work. And this is something I think about when I'm Mm -hmm. on both sides of the therapy couch, actually. do, Do you ever think about the effect of turn-taking or not turn-taking in your work. Do you ever apply pragmatic principles to something so specific, um, such as whether to respond to something the patient said or not? Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, uh, or whether or not um, you, you should respond in, at this time or, or you should try to wait to see if you can understand what it's about. Or um, right, if you uh, you know maybe maybe now it's, it's too soon to, to suggest something um, I think we all think about that a lot um, that um, right that it when, when, when sessions are going well it, it feels that there's a, a lot of fluidity and um, the experience sort of, matches up to a sense that the that session is moving along almost um, not sort of of its own volition, but, but at, at a way that makes sense. And then I think that when sometimes we, we get stuck, we wonder, should I have said something at that point in time? Should I have brought this up sooner? Should I bring this up later? Should I wait to bring this up in another session? Um, right. And, and I think we, we, we try to listen to hear um, if we have a hypothesis or a, an idea, right? About what something might be about. Um, is there something in what the patient has told us that we think connects to it, so it doesn't come out of the blue, or is it coming from us, or is it coming from them? Um, so, um, I, I think we th- I think about these things a lot, and I think one of the things that is interesting is that to, to bring it back to purse for a second, uh, communication, right? Talking and not talking are both sign-based processes. They both involve the use of semiotics. Um, And semiotics, one of the the types or classes of signs are called symbols. And they're meanings that are conventionally agreed upon. That old quote about sort of a rose by any other name um, is a rose. um, Or if I butchered it, that's possible too. Um, and it 's what lets us know that we 're sort of talking about the same thing or not, um, but if you think about it, we use words and we use symbols and lots of like in so many different contexts, and so they become full of so many different meanings um, that when patients are using words with us when they 're talking with us um The words they use can have so many meanings that are both private to them and private to the therapist that get signified and and, and, and come to to mind on each side. Um, And so the sense that we're making of patients' words will impact how we respond or if we don't respond um, or if we respond in a way that we think makes sense, um, but we can never necessarily know in advance. And that means that there's always some sense of ambiguity um, and so, yeah, so I, I think a lot of that, uh, turn taking or, or how long to wait before to respond or how long should we sit with a pause mm. uh, or and if you miss something,
1: you, you know, as though you didn't do enough work in putting together this book and, and everything that goes into being the editor of a book and you also write the conclusion. And I thought you did a really great job of sending us off with ways to apply these ideas, in our work or even in our lives, if, if if some of our listeners are not psychotherapists. I know that you said pragmatism, pragmatism is not about doing things and thinking in ways that are practical and useful, but I do think that pragmatism, when applied to psychoanalysis, it does for force psychoanalysis or any kind of psychotherapy to – it forces us to – conduct our treatments in ways that are actually useful and effective to work in ways that have the kind of effects that we want to have that, that our patients want to see, which mm-hmm. I, I personally think is sometimes missing in our field. But I want to know what, what's your take on this issue?
0: Yeah. It's not that pragmatism isn't useful and practical. Um, it, it, it's that the, the pragmatism is about um, considering uh, it's a way of trying to consider a fact. Um, and so it's a way of talking about how someone is living um, and then what the effects would be and in, in, of, of maybe living differently. So I think it can and does lead to practical and useful things. Um, but in of itself, it's not a philosophy necessarily of, of doing a practical thing. Um, but yeah, to, to answer your question I'm, I'm without getting too confused. um i absolutely think that one of the things that it helps us with is ensuring that um that the effects that the therapy or a therapy is having is in helping a person towards their idea of the good life how they want to be living their life um and presumably when patients are coming to see us they're coming because they're not living the life that they want to be living um And so I think one of the things that's nice about pragmatism, is it allows for multiple senses of like what the good life is. Um, But it also helps us push towards towards helping the individual live the type of life they want to live. Um, So um, and in that extent, I think pragmatism can sometimes also be useful for dealing with the basic concrete day to day things of of living that sometimes therapists don't necessarily want to deal with.
1: But but I, I love that because it seems like it introduces, once again, a certain amount of accountability into our practice. I, I think particularly when you're young and, or when you're first learning how to do psychotherapy or any skill, you might sometimes be much more concerned with doing it right or following what you think is um, the textbook way of doing something such that then when you go and do your work, you feel, well, if I stuck to... The text and i did it the way that the theory says it should be done well then i did it right and it seems like pragmatism mm-hmm. introduces a different angle which makes you think well whether or not you did it by the book what is the effect that what you're doing is having on the patient on on the process and how does that serve as data to inform your work and and to inform mm-hmm. the adjustments that you might need to make
0: yeah uh, absolutely and, and and i think uh Right. The, the desire to do it right or to, to know the way. That's the metaphysical um, sense that I think pragmatism is pushing back against. Um, it's less interested in saying this is the right way or this is the truth or this is the way to live or this is what this is. Um, and it's more about saying things are multiple things are, have a multivariate. And what we need to do is what we can do is we can consider the different effects that ideas have And and, and some of those are very practical in terms of how somebody's living their life. Um, And and, and in that regard, I think it it frees us up from worrying in some ways about are we doing it right? Because pragmatism, and I think this is what Freud was onto that Tanya talked about, pragmatism is about recognizing that people's psychologies are processes. They're ongoing. They're active. They're not static. They're dynamic. Um, And a a pragmatic psychology is about trying to engage a person's psychological processes of meaning making, um, and to do it in a, in a collaborative relationship, right? So to consider the effects of, of how a therapy is going or how an intervention is, you have to have, you have to be working with the patient, um, in a collaborative relationship. Um, and, and so it, it, um, I think it pushes us in that direction. Um, you know, one of the things about, um, I think it pushes us towards is, is recognizing that, that people are actually sort of the experts of themselves and that therapists are trying to help facilitate their own ability to touch into their own expertise. Um, and, and, to be more observant about that, to be more aware of it. Um,
1: I think that's a really beautiful way to put it. Um, so Phil, this has actually been a great conversation has had a great effect on me and not just how I work, but how I think about the way I make sense of the world. Before we go, can you tell us what you're working on these days? Um,
0: what I've been working on these days is, um, um, taking some of the pragmatic, um, ideas, um, of semiotic mediation, um, and bringing them into conversation with, with field theory um and, and the field theories that are popular in psychoanalysis don stern 's thinking and ferro's thinking um, but but also um, some of the field theories in, from a, more of a mainstream psychology um, and trying to really flesh out the idea of psychotherapy as a field process um, and, and to articulate what it, what that means in terms of um, the the field of relating between therapist and patient and, and how um, individuals move within different fields and, and what obstructs movement and what facilitates movement um, and I think that's uh, the most of what I'm working on. Um,
1: well, that sounds exciting. Will you will you let us know when the next book comes out? <laughs> Absolutely, but not for uh, not for any time in the near future, as far as I can tell. Well, well, we'll be anxiously waiting. Um, Philip, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great having you. My pleasure. Thank you, Eugenio. All right. Take care. Take care. That was my interview with Philip Rosenbaum, author of the book, Making Our Ideas Clear, Pragmatism and Psychoanalysis. This is Eugenio Duarte for New Books in Psychology. Don't forget to tell me what you think by going to my website www.eugenioduartephd.com and clicking on contact. Have a great week.